there's these opportunities to create new markets, new skills, new jobs. It's not a case of people doing without. It's a case of us using the amazing technologies we have. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 100 Climate Conversations. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. Today is number 99 of 100 Conversations happening here every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians who are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're recording live here today in the Boiler Hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right up until the 1960s. So it's fitting that in this powerhouse museum, we shift our focus forward to the solutions to climate. My name is Marion Wilkinson, and I've written and broadcast many stories about climate change. My latest book, The Carbon Club, describes the fraught political battles over our climate policy. Chris Turney is Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a professor of Earth System Science. As an academic, he partners with governments, business, NGOs and communities to explore the solutions to environmental challenges. He's a scientific advisor to the New Zealand-based clean tech company Carbonscape, and he's also spent many years researching and writing about Antarctica, making several trips to the frozen continent to study the stability of the ice sheets and their future impact on sea level rise. Last year, he was appointed to the board of the New South Wales government's Environment Protection Authority. So please join me in welcoming Chris Turney to the powerhouse. Chris, your climate research has taken you from the polar ice caps to the tropics. And I wondered as a kid, was there a part of you that just wanted to be out in the field discovering things rather than stuck in the classroom? <laughs> I think so, Mary. I was completely indulged as a child. My, my dad was a forester by training. So we travelled all across the UK, living in really remote places. And it was very much sort of uh, sustainable living, growing our own food a lot of the time, and just living in those places where you could just go off and explore. And uh, even as a child, I was... My parents bought me a weather station. I mean, who does that, honestly? <laughs> so I was completely nerding out in the environment. But at the same time, just allowed to explore over moorlands in forests. It was just an incredible childhood, but it just captured the imagination for me and just allowed me to get a sense of how the world works and fall in love with nature. You were moving between the UK and the Antipodes, New Zealand, Wollongong, Canberra, but you finally settled in Sydney at UNSW, the University of New South Wales, for a while. What led you to finally pick Sydney? <laughs> I love this part of the world, Marion. I really, it's just, we fell in love with it. I think the first time when I came over, I had one of my first postdocs was at the Australian National University in Canberra. 
and our daughter was less than one year old and we drove up to the tropics to work up there. It was a four-day drive. It just blew my mind that you could travel for four days and not fall off the edge. There's no way you could do that in the UK. And so the Australian Research Council have this amazing thing called the Laureate Fellowship Scheme. And I was so, so lucky. And I wanted to look at uh, an element of a climate system called tipping points. And the Laureate Scheme allowed you to basically set up a research team to actually look at that. And tipping points are these elements of the climate system. I mean, they work in economic, social theory, a whole load of different ideas. But the, Malcolm Gladwell had a book by the title. And the, and the idea of a principle is that basically you can only push a system so far and then it goes into a completely different state. And no matter how much you try to put step back, if you've gone over a cliff, there's no way back. And so it moves into this other condition. And the climate system, that's huge, right? Because one of the challenges we've got when we're trying to understand how the planet will respond to carbon pollution is that it's based on the understanding of what we're seeing now, particularly from the satellite era, so from the late 70s. Um, otherwise, from the observations that people have made, you know, going out morning, noon and night, taking weather records, which maybe get you back 100, 150 years. But that's nothing compared to where we're going. We're going off the map with the amount of carbon pollution, what the planet system can do. And so when you go further back in time, you can start seeing these massive tipping points, you know, the collapse of ice sheets, ocean circulation changes just stopping, which we've not seen in the last 150 years or so. And so it's only by taking that longer perspective, you realize how sensitive the climate system is to forcing and changes. And so I wanted to get a better handle of that. And there's an amazing team at the University of New South Wales, gorgeous part of the world. I had the resources and the team that I could actually just run with it without dealing with a lot of the other administration and other things <laughs> academics just love. And uh, as a result, you know, I had, had an amazing time at, at the university. We often talk about the tipping points idea in climate, and it's highly controversial, as you know, within the scientific community. But I'm wondering, in all your years of looking at the tipping points, do you think we are closer to seeing them now than even, say, 10 oh, years ago? The changes we're seeing now, man, are just truly horrifying. I really wrestle with this. I think, I think I'm pretty convinced pretty much everyone you've interviewed probably goes for the same thing. Sometimes I wake up optimistic, other times I just cry. And the changes we're seeing particularly at the moment are extraordinary. When I was studying climate change, when I started at University of East Anglia, it was happening, or even that was controversial. Have we actually detected that signal? You know, James Hansen called it in ADA, but it was still like, mm, slightly not quite sure, the whole community. And progressively, everything seems to have got faster and faster. And we're recording this now in October 2023, and they just dropped the results a few days ago, a few hours ago, saying that October, again, is the warmest October on record ever. And that's the fifth successive month warmer than ever. And we're effectively looking quite likely, but we're going to hit an average of 1.5 degrees for this year, 2023. Oh my gosh, you know, previously it was 1.2. We've just suddenly jumped massively. And what that apparent acceleration of temperature and warming is 
really, really, really worrying. And when you then look at things like the Climate Agreement of Paris, which says that we need to restrict global average temperatures to two degrees, and, which doesn't sound much, and, but it's a huge amount because that's an average temperature, and ideally 1.5, and that, that means several years at 1.5. But, you know, a few years ago, it was maybe sometime in the next 10, 20 years we might hit that, and then last year, earlier this year, it was like we might hit this in the next five years, and now we're talking about we could hit it this year. And that 1.5 isn't a number that's just been plucked out of the air. It's a limit on where some of those tipping points might happen. And 1.5 is where we might start seeing things tip. And just the last month, a paper came out in Nature looking at the Western Antarctic ice sheet as one example. And that's just one example where it looks like the equivalent of four meters of global sea level rise trapped as water in the ice is almost certainly gone. When it will go, we don't know, but that's effectively gone beyond the threshold where we can hold that ice back. It's going to go at some point now. That's extraordinary. So yes, I think we're very close to the point at which sadly now some of these things are locked in. And I think that's the sobering thing which we often forget about. It's not this lovely response where we just stop emitting carbon and we pull straight back. 90% of the heat that gets trapped in the atmosphere, that is caused by humans, gets trapped in the atmosphere, but then goes into the ocean. So, and there's four Hiroshima's bombs of energy being trapped each second as a result of these carbon emissions. So you've got this huge amount of energy that's building up in the planet, which is still playing out. And that is like, wow, what do we do about that? That's an extraordinary challenge for us. I want to take you back to some of your earlier work because one of the things I think that comes through in your scientific talks and your papers is this understanding of dating mm. and why this is so important when we look at climate research. And one of your early books was bones, rocks and stars that explored the science of time, the science of dating. Why was that so important to you? And when did you really hook into this idea about the science of time? It's one of those aspects when, when you've, got, you've got gorgeous observation records scientists have taken, you've got everything beautifully written out in logbooks and everything's timed beautifully. Nature does the same. It has these wonderful weather stations. You've got trees, you've got ice collecting in, um, on the ice sheets, there's annual snowfall, you've got these beautiful layers forming in lakes. These are nature's weather stations, and they're very responsive to weather, you know. We've known since Leonardo da Vinci, you know, a tree that's growing under perfect weather conditions, puts on a nice, fat, juicy ring, and then if it's a really bad year, there's a very thin sliver or no ring at all. And we've all done that. We've walked along, we've seen a fallen tree, and we try to count the number of rings. So it's a beautiful record. Trees are a lovely example because you can get absolute dating year by year, and that can go back thousands and thousands of years. Other things like when you drill an ice core, you know, three kilometers above sea level, and it's minus 40 degrees, and you're going down each through the ice going down kilometers or so, and ice gets more and more compressed and the layers are less and less clear. And depending on whether the ice is drifting, of course, whether you've actually, the snow is drifting, 
whether you've actually got year by year is just not so certain. And so when you actually want to start looking at how the climate system responds, you've got to be aware of those uncertainties. Because when we're talking about, oh, what's driving a climate system, how quickly do ice sheets respond or the coral reefs respond to forcing, you've got to know, is it bang on the same time? Is it a five, 10 year lag? And that's huge for us because that's what we need dealing with these major issues. Moving forward, if things are going to respond really quickly, it's not in the instrumental record, it's back in the past. So I just found those, those examples where you could look in the past and actually explain to people how it was done was really, it just gave you insight. I used to teach the course and it was a really dry course. I hope the person who originally taught it is not listening to this, but it was called Quaternary Geochronology and it was like dull as dishwater. <laughs> and there's a, a young teacher, lecturer, I inherited this course with all these notes and lots of equations, much of which I didn't really understand. <laughs> and I had to teach it to the students. And they were bored. I was bored. Everyone was bored. What are we doing here? And uh, after about week three or four, I noticed that actually when you were teaching these courses and you were giving these lectures, everyone woke up, including myself, when you actually got to the example. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I thought, I'll flip it. I'll start with a question and then I'll come back to how do we answer it. And so in there, there was things like dating ice cores, there was the Turin Shroud, you know, a famous forgery, you know, dating volcanic eruptions, Santorini, you know, and, and you just have these wonderful stories, end of the dinosaurs and other things. Where King Arthur is a bit of a favorite of mine as well. And I just started with Monty Python and the <laughs> Grail, for those of us old enough to remember that. And then just use those as examples, but flipping it. And, and, and that was just, I realized again, the importance of stories. Because it's by telling a story, you share knowledge and engagement. Because I wasn't expecting them all to become world leading quaternary geochronologists, you know, that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to explore the beauty of the science and get people to think critically, but they knew that there were these issues and they could actually interrogate these ideas when people talked about these things. And so that was all my purpose. So that if they got away with one element of that and they linked it to a story, job done. And it really informed me with how I actually communicate science. But actually, stories are a way to do it. This research also fascinatingly really dovetailed into your other research on tipping points and with your fascination of Antarctica. Mm. So you took your first research trip to Antarctica, was around 2010? Yes, that's right, yes. And that obviously set you up for looking at tipping points but also drew on your work about this idea of the science of time but I'm wondering, why Antarctica? Why were you so fascinated with Antarctica? Look, I won't lie to you. I think originally the stories were ripping yarns. Uh, one of my great heroes, and still is, is Sir Ernest Shackleton. For those people who don't know, he was amazing. He led multiple expeditions down, never lost a man, was involved in the most extraordinary tales of heroism. And if people are not familiar with when they were trapped in the Weddell Sea or the Endurance, which the ship actually sank. I mean, it was 18 months. It, it was like, you couldn't make the movie up. It sounds a fake. So I, I grew up with these ripping yarns. And then when the opportunity came there to go down, we went with a private company called Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. And Antarctica for me, I mean, I was born in 1973. 
And there was a pioneering paper that was published in 1976 in Nature by a guy called John Mercer. And he said then, in 1976, <laughs> he said a doubling of carbon dioxide and watch out for the West Antarctic ice sheet. And the reason for that was the fact that the, the Antarctic's got this weird sort of thing of east and west. And basically, it's just where the Greenwich Mean Time comes down through the Antarctic. And you've got the big ear, which is East Antarctic. You've got the West Antarctic, which is the other bit. And then you've got the peninsula of a finger that points up to South America. And he pointed out that even back in the 70s, he could tell, which is amazing, really, and it's all been confirmed since, that most of that ice sheet is sitting on the seabed, unlike the East Antarctic. There's elements of that which actually are still below the seabed, and they're a lot thicker, but most of the West Antarctic is actually sitting on the seabed. And it's held back in place by some of these things called ice shells, which are basically like buttresses of ice that are holding it in place. But effectively, if you warm the oceans and it gets under the ice sheet, effectively the whole thing slips into the ocean. That's it, ultimately, and you lose that ice sheet. And he pointed out that in the past, so when periods were naturally warmer, the ice fell in the oceans. And he warned that, you know, as you start losing ice shelves down the peninsula of a finger of Antarctica, watch out for the West Antarctic. That's all happening now. And he wrote about 1976. So we knew from the last time the world was warm about 120, 130,000 years ago, which sounds an insane amount of time for most people. But that was the last period the world was naturally warmer. And the polar regions we know are about two degrees warmer than today. And sea levels were six, nine metres higher than they are. And the implication is it must have been Antarctica and the West Antarctic must have gone, but no one could prove that. And so we wanted to go down and test that idea. Had the West Antarctic ice sheet actually largely disappeared when it was naturally warmer? And you went back then 10 years later in 2020 and did a research paper out of that. And you've been down more recently, I think a year ago, What's your current thinking about the stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet and the implications for sea level rise now? Yeah, so we went back to the actual site that Michael Palin flew into, which was a lovely thing going back to my teenage years. And it's a place called Patriot Hills, and it's only 50 kilometres from what we call the grounding line. And that's the point at which the ice disconnects from the seabed and, and rises up. And so it's super close to the edge of the ice sheet. And it's in this weird spot that's basically buttressed by all the ice sheet around it. And so effectively, no ice flows into it, and it goes up and down the ice in this valley, depending on how much ice there is. And we found that basically during this period when the world was naturally a wee bit warmer, up to two degrees, most of the ice disappeared. And so we could show that under a sort of Paris agreement of a two-degree warmer world the Western Antarctic ice sheet did indeed go, and probably very early on in the warming. We could actually show that it was very early. So that was what we published, and we're able to confirm that idea that John Mercer had done back in 1976. Um, we went back last November, in November 22, and we were going down to actually look at whether we could actually do far more detail to see if we got on were there any early warning signals in the ice that would give us heads up this is going to happen again now? And we were flying down. This is in late November last year. And now November is spring in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's really just when the sun has just started rising above the horizon 
in that part of the world. And so there shouldn't be much warmth or energy in the system. And so most of what you'd expect as you fly down the peninsula, because we're flying from South America down, is it should, most of the Southern Ocean should be covered in sea ice, right up to the peninsula. And what we saw was just horrendous. It was open water already that early in the season. And it was like a bad Hollywood movie because that shouldn't be happening. That was so off the scale on what had ever been recorded before. It looked beautiful, but it was an environmental disaster. And since then, the rest of the Antarctic continent, the sea ice surrounding the uh, ice sheet has retreated and not really recovered nearly to the extent that it should do normally. And so what you're faced with is this idea that, oh my God, so you've suddenly changed from a, like an air conditioning unit of a planet where the, the heat is being reflected off the sea ice and keeping things cool to suddenly ramping up the warming because now you've changed the reflectivity of the surface. You've got open water, it's dark, you're absorbing that heat, the ocean's warmer, you're then potentially warming and melting more of the ice sheets. The whole thing's like a bad news story, you know, it's everything's amplifying and speeding up. That was just horrendous. Now, a lot of scientists have argued in the past, I think including scientists who've worked for the UN's IPCC, that this problem in the West Antarctic could be offset by the East Antarctic still having a build-up of snow and ice. Is that still the case or is that idea now sort of really being questioned? That was something, Marion, that for a while there was this hope that things might balance out. The latest work from NASA shows there has been some modest increases in snowfall in the East Antarctic, but has been more than outshone by the amount of melting going on in the West Antarctic. And, of course, if it accelerates even further, West Antarctic, it's not going to be able to offset that. But the question is when. The question is when. You've got four metres of global sea level rise trapped in the ice sheet. And depending on, because of the gravity and the way that um, water moves around the planet, some places that could be even higher. So the east coast of the US would probably be five metres. I mean, you're looking at Bangkok, Manila, London, New Orleans. You know, these places which are super vulnerable already, just really struggling with that. And how do you do that? Because... Half the world lives in cities, and many of us are near the coast. And so we've, we've got an enormous challenge with how we actually manage that. Well, maybe this is the right place to move on to the fact that you're moving from research about climate change and its impact to solutions. Yes. So you're now in a new role at the University of Technology, Sydney, and you're focusing on practical solutions. But you actually started on that journey quite some years ago when you became an advisor and I think founder of a little New Zealand startup called Carbonscape. Tell us about that. That was a, that was a bonkers experience as a teenager. So back in the 80s, for those of us who remember when microwaves turned up in their homes, many of us didn't understand how they worked. And my dad still argues with me about who said what to whom. But anyway, the idea was that Mum and dad were actually going out for dinner, which was one of the rare instances that's some money. And they, they left me at home and said, oh, cook a potato. I understood dad told me, put it in for 20 minutes, 
which is not a long time in the microwave. Not good in the microwave. <laughs> not good in the microwave. And then turn it over and give it another 20. What could go wrong? So, um, minutes afterwards, I said the fire alarm was going off, came into the kitchen, smoke's billowing out of a microwave. And then I grab some um, tea towels and I, I get the plate and I throw it out the door. And then I just remembered it smashing. And, and the potato, what was left of it, just broke into lots of little chunks of basically coal, glowing embers. It was just, I charcoaled it. At the time, I thought, oh, that was just an awful experience. Mum and Dad were incredibly good about it. I think because Dad was embarrassed, actually. But anyway, another <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I had that experience. And then years later, Dad had been doing all this pioneering work in sustainability. And Dad was driving all this thing with, you know, net zero, you know, companies producing wines that were zero carbon. This was, you know, this was amazing. It's the late 90s, early noughties. It was incredible stuff. And so we were talking a lot more about this sort of space. And we were chatting about this as well, these ideas where you could actually do something where you could develop a technology where maybe you could fix carbon and you could do some good for the planet. And so we were chatting about ideas. And initially I thought, oh, you know, maybe we could just charcoal something. And at first I was trying all these different ideas and it just wasn't working. And then it suddenly sparked this awful experience of a microwave. I said to dad, look, maybe that would work. So I bought one and used it out in the backyard. And we realized actually this was a really good way of fixing carbon. And it basically led to the idea of carbonscape. And so we set carbonscape up as a way, originally of fixing carbon. But it's gone on to this amazing thing because basically what we realized was actually you have to go where the market goes. And the market went for a number of different things. And basically we've landed on creating graphite for lithium-ion batteries. And for those people not familiar with it, graphite is either, typically it's mined, so fossil graphite effectively, or it's made from petroleum, which is what they call synthetic graphite. Really nasty carbon emissions as a result of that. And, and for those people not familiar with lithium-ion batteries, they can make a third to a half of the, the weight of a lithium-ion battery. So graphite is actually a major part of lithium-ion batteries, and most of which comes from China. So the market shifted towards the demand for graphite, and could you actually create something that's more sustainable? And so the team there, just amazing people, brilliant engineers, scientists, and they've just taken it to a level up. And so as a result, you can actually make what we call biographite from forestry waste, and you can make it locally, and it's actually a net zero, it's negative carbon, actually, because you fix more carbon in the process by creating it, and it's locally produced. So it was just an amazing experience. But one of the things it really taught me around was that actually is that I learned so much from that. We put a lot of time, effort, money into that. I've worked with a lot of other people outside the university and working with industry and learning how how those ideas work and how you translate science and ideas and getting out there. And they've, they've done a big you know, multi-million dollar raise and they're setting up production now in North America and Europe. And it feels really good that we're actually doing something positive that's gonna hopefully make a difference. But there's lots of these ideas out there, lots and lots of them. And universities and people have got their own nearly burning a house down experiences, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Hopefully someone's listening to this and think, oh, that was that could be applied in a different way. So, you know, I caution everyone, like if you've got those embarrassing moments, maybe there's another way you can you know, learn from it. Well, in the position you're now in at UTS, you can do some of this. What excites you now and what do you think you will be able to achieve in this new role where you are trying to build these bridges 
between the innovators, business, the university, and the community. I took this role because after 25 years in research, and I still love research, I just saw this as this is a challenge of our generation and some. And so working at a university which prides itself on linking to industry and government and communities is terrifically important if you're going to make this happen. But I think it's true of all universities. And I think the challenge is how do we create that environment where we can actually engage? And you see that at multiple levels. So we have a research and development where we've got these amazing stuff where we're actually looking to deploy. But it's also the students coming through. You know, half the students who come to UTS either want to run their own startup or be involved in the startup. You know, we have a huge startup community of undergraduates, increasingly with PhDs. They're going out, they're learning. Sometimes they do really, really well. So, and, and we can upskill people who are my age and older who want to come and learn new skills, which we need to in this new net zero world where we need lots of skills. We just haven't got the skill base at the moment. There's a workforce out there. But there's also the research and development side of things where we want to get those ideas out there. What's exciting me at the moment there's so many different aspects, but I think one thing at the moment is we're seeing, you know, we talk about cutting emissions, but at the end of the day, we're still putting more carbon into the atmosphere. Carbon pollution is driving this mess that we're in. And we're not going to be a net zero, well, ideally by 2050, but at the moment, that's really looking like a massive challenge. And we've already got climate change happening already. So I think one of the excitement for me is not only deploying all these amazing technologies to get us down fast, it's how do we draw that carbon down? And so, you know, UTS is doing a lot of that sort of technology development. I'm part of what's called the Climate Recovery Institute as well as an advisor on that. And the idea is actually all this billions of tons of carbon that's in the atmosphere already, this pollution, we need to draw that down. That's an entirely new market. And the UN saying, even if we get to net zero, 8 billion tons of carbon dioxide we need to trap each year just to get to net zero. And then we've got all the extra carbon that's been accumulating all over this time. So we need to draw that down really fast. And we're not going to get that by even just one university. It's a global effort. But you know, one of the things that we're doing at UTS is something called the Green Genie, which is just it's a gorgeous idea. So using microalgae, and for those people that just like green water, microalgae can fix carbon 40 times more efficiently, effectively, than trees. And so the Green Genie, if you come to University of Technology Sydney, there's this container, 20-foot container, and inside that is a series of tubes filled with microalgae where they're pumping carbon dioxide in, the microalgae are fixing that, growing, and then you can use that algae to either feed cattle and get their carbon emissions down, their methane emissions down, which is another carbon pollution uh, source. You can make plastics, building materials, to fix the carbon, and you can deploy that anywhere around the world. That's amazing. <laughs> That's just amazing, right? And lots of universities and ideas are out there. So I think universities, we've got this opportunity where we can really drive change. But the scale is enormous. And I think there's a worry. I have a worry that actually the enormity of what we face hasn't yet actually sunk in. I mean, it's a war-like mobilization of resources. And we just haven't, we're just starting to wake up. I think when we hit 1.5, if we are going to hit 1.5, 
We had the fires in 2019-20 here in Australia, tragic northern hemisphere heat waves and fires and flooding. This year's broken all records, it's bonkers. And so I think that's focusing minds. The deployment of renewables is making a huge difference. But there's these opportunities to create new markets, new skills, new jobs. It's not a case of people doing without, it's a case of us using the amazing technologies we have, which we know we can use, and just getting there as quickly as possible. Well, on that point, of course, the other side of that is stopping putting carbon pollution in the atmosphere. There has been a lot of criticism that Australia has not weaned itself off fossil fuels and the, or not fast enough, Mm. and that it's um, continuing to encourage fossil fuel development, particularly in the gas industry. But this is also happening in the US, in a lot of other countries as well. I know you've been really interested in this idea of climate litigation, the big case in America Mm. where the Children's Trust is taking a case on behalf of American youth Mm. against the government there because of its failure, the government failure to deal with climate change and growing emissions. Well, you, of course, have just recently been appointed to the New South Wales Board of the Environment Protection Authority. Do you think there is an avenue there where you can argue persuasively that climate change and climate pollution and its impact on the environment can be used further in the work that the EPA here does in prosecuting environmental cases? The Environment Protection Authority here in New South Wales is amazing. They're an incredible group. So I'm incredibly fortunate to be on there on the board. That's a fascinating example in its own right. So we've got the most forward-looking, as a state, we have the most forward-looking policies now. We have a climate change action plan. Carbon dioxide levels are going down. But interestingly, that actual policy and driving out forward was actually as a result of a court action itself. So the EPA, for those people not familiar, was set up in 1991. So back when Brundtland Report, the Rio Summit, and, and the thing that I've always loved about the EPA is written into our legislation. It's not just to protect, it's also to restore and actually enhance the environment. We've got a beautiful state, and that's what we're legislated to do. So we've got really wide-ranging powers. It's a statutory authority, but it's independent. But after the tragedy of the 2019-20 fires here in Australia, the bushfires survivors for climate action took the EPA to court and we were effectively instructed, they were effectively instructed to come up with a policy to actually deliver on climate change. And so this has led to climate change plan and effectively the idea is to get to net zero by 2050, half the emissions by 2030, which is not that far away, 70% reduction by 2035. That's what we're aiming for. And this first phase, basically, it's been released. It was public consultation. The important thing with these, Marin, is you can't just say, this is how it's going to be. You've got to take the community with you on whatever you're doing. You've got to engage at every level. We've got to take everyone with us. So... This is basically flagged to industry and the state. This is happening. And in this first stage, it's basically providing 
for support and their help to tell industry, support industry on all these different forms, how are we going to get there? And then if required, we'll then actually have to start issuing limits as well moving forward. But that's the amazing plan that we're doing and we're, we're ahead of everyone else in Australia. So it's an absolute privilege to be on the board and actually help support that amazing endeavour. You're a science teacher, a science researcher and a science communicator about climate change. What do you tell your own children? How do you tell your own children to be resilient in the face of our future? That's such a difficult one. It really is. And they've seen me go from the highs and lows and that doesn't help anyone. We talk a lot about what we can do as a family. You know, the kids I'm incredibly proud of, Carl and Robert, you know, they're in their 20s now, so they're full adults, they're living their own lives. They've got this strong sense of sustainability and low impact in their lives, which is amazing. But we talk about resilience. They're pretty strong people, to be honest, stronger than I am. They get that from their mum. So that does help a lot. But it's being there and being able to talk. It's not something we talk about a lot, to be honest. I sometimes get banned from talking about it, <laughs> quite for good reason. Um, but at the same time, we're very honest with one another about what we're doing. It's, everyone has different conversations privately within their family about how they manage it. It's really tough. It's tough, and I don't think there's a manual for it. There's no way you just, we're all learning. And I think that's a really important sense of this. There's no right or wrong way for it. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Chris Turney, and I'd like to ask you all to please join me in thanking Chris with a round of applause. Thank you. To follow our program online, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or go to 100climateconversations.com. And records of these conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook.